The Tom Woods Show, episode 1531. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. Folks, if you enjoy the Tom Woods Show, it's time to go to the next level. And next level Tom Woods is libertyclassroom.com. This is where my friends and I teach all the stuff you did not get in your conventional education, history, economics, and more, the way it ought to be taught with all the content they left out or distorted. Check it out at libertyclassroom.com. Hey, everybody, Tom Woods here. We're talking today about Jeffrey Epstein. Now, that case involving Jeffrey Epstein was dismissed. The charges against Epstein were dismissed on August 29th of this year, 2019, because of Epstein's death on August 10th of this year. And so you would think, though, this issue has just gone away and that's the end of it, but people just won't let it go away, and good for them. The media wants it to go away, that's obvious, but it keeps on coming up and a couple of developments culturally have kept it on the front burner and make it still a living issue. And and one of them is this Epstein didn't kill himself meme thing that you've been seeing on social media that's really quite impressive. Um, You probably know the details of Jeffrey Epstein. He was an American financier and a convicted sex offender. The story, the basic details are that he had associations with many, many elite people in many areas of society. And he, along with some of these people, sexually abused a great many underage girls. In fact, federal officials had identified three dozen such girls. Uh, He was convicted only of two crimes as part of a plea deal. And then we were told that he committed suicide in his jail cell. Well, we're going to talk about this whole thing today with uh, Whitney Webb, who's a journalist who's done some very interesting work on Epstein for Mint Press News and I'll link to all her work on this at tomwoods.com slash 1531. Whitney, welcome. Hey, thanks so much for having me on. I had numerous requests for you specifically, not just an episode on Epstein, but with you specifically as the guest. So I went and read some of your columns, and then I found Phil Giraldi, who's ex-CIA, whom I've had on a number of times, whom I like very much, who, although I don't think he mentioned your name, seems to have gotten some of his information from your columns and was endorsing it. So that really made me sit up and take notice. (laughs) With a story like this, you hardly know where to start because in your telling of it, you actually do start the story way in the past to show that people like this and uh, the role that Epstein played, this is not some new phenomenon that it has existed in the past. So there's a lot that we can cover here. Let me start off by asking you what is the evidence that Epstein was not just simply somebody with, um, let's say, sociopath-style sexual predator qualities, but who, beyond that, was looking to blackmail people, that that's the real thing that's going on here. Is this just speculation, or do we have hard evidence of this? Okay, so regarding the blackmail aspect, there is hard evidence in the sense that there were lots of pictures electronic uh, storage equipment, things like that, that recorded pictures and videos of people that Epstein would invite to his residences that would engage in in sexual acts with these underage girls. And also testimony from a lot of the victims themselves saying that Epstein asked them for information uh, that could be compromising about the sexual habits of the people that they were forced to interact with and that they had gotten the impression that Epstein 
and also Ghislaine Maxwell were using that information for the purposes of blackmail. And of course, we know too that you know Epstein was tied to intelligence. For example, Alexander Acosta, before he became Secretary of Labor, was reported to have told uh, White House transition officials that the reason he uh, negotiated the sweetheart deal for Epstein was because that Epstein was um, was linked to intelligence. And of course, uh, obviously, intelligence agencies have a long history of using blackmail and obtaining blackmail through various operations, including sexual blackmail operations. So, you know, th- there's plenty of evidence that Epstein was involved in blackmail and not just doing it for, you know, his own personal pursuit of power, but on behalf of, of a state actor. Ah, okay. All right. So now we'll we'll get back to that later because there's been some insinuation that he had some connection to intelligence. And he himself at one time said something about working for the CIA and then he did. walked that back. Yeah. I mean, what's what's that all about? It's a very strange thing to make a claim like that and then say, oh, never mind, forget that. Right. So this comes from an article that was published in 2001 in the United Kingdom. And it was about, um, it cited someone who had been told by Epstein in the 90s that Epstein had claimed to work for the CIA in the past. And then when uh, the author of this article, Nigel Rosser, contacted Epstein for comment, he denied that. So that's the origin of of that claim. But if you look back in Epstein's um, work history, for example, there are some um, pretty clear CIA ties. I would argue that the or links rather, I would um, argue that the strongest of that is when he was um, managing logistics for Leslie Wexner's company, The Limited, and in doing so, uh, negotiated the relocation of an entire company known as Southern Air Transport from Miami, Florida to Columbus, Ohio, where The Limited is based. And of course, Southern Air Transport at that time this was in uh, between 1994 and 1995, uh, was already known, well known as a CIA front company that had actually just a few years prior in the 1980s been intimately involved in drug running uh, in connection with the Iran-Contra affair. And as a consequence of that, several people in Ohio's government, including the state's inspector general, openly speculated that Wexner and Epstein were working with the CIA, smuggling things from Hong Kong uh, to Columbus and and back, which is this route that this uh, airline was running for Wexner's company. And he actually referred to that route as the Mayor Lansky run, um, sort of referencing this, um, you know, notorious mobster to which um, Wexner actually has connections, as do some other people that come up in the the work history and and backstory of Epstein. What's the connection between Epstein and Bill Clinton? Okay, so there's a couple different ways to approach that question. But what we know is that even though, you know, when this story uh, first broke, even even back when Epstein was first arrested, the narrative uh, put out by the media is that the Epstein-Clinton relationship began after Clinton left office. But it has since been revealed that that is uh, blatantly false and that by the early um the early 90s, actually Clinton's first year in office, Epstein made several trips to the White House, not meeting with Clinton in person per se, but meeting with, um, I believe, the deputy chief of staff um, on several occasions. He was also attending um, donor dinners by that year with Ghislaine Maxwell, and he attended um, several in 19, at least one in 1993 and several later on in the 1990s. That first donor dinner and, and that first connection to the Clinton administration is believed to have been brokered by a, a man named Arnold Paul Prosperi, who is a Palm Beach real estate lawyer. He's deceased now, but he 
was one of the people that organized that donor dinner. He was very close to Bill Clinton, um, a close friend from his college days onward, and was actually controversially pardoned by Clinton in 2001. And he was also very close to Epstein. And actually, after uh, while Epstein was in prison the first time, this man, um, a Prosperi, visited Epstein about 20 times, which is, is, you know, that's a lot of visits for someone that was serving a relatively short prison sentence. So, um, you know, after the 90s, of course, um, that relationship between Epstein and Clinton became a lot more public, specifically with, um, you know, this now infamous flight to Africa for this AIDS charity event. That included people like Kevin Spacey, Chris Tucker, Bill Clinton, and that was all taken on Epstein's plane. And this was actually a trip where Bill Clinton had Doug Band arrange for Epstein's plane to be made available months and months in advance. He wanted that plane specifically out of all the planes that could have been at the disposal of the former president. This is the plane he wanted, and he set it up months in advance. What took place on that plane, of course, is uh, you know the subject of speculation, but it's certainly uh, disturbing, especially considering that some of the other people known to have been on that flight, like Kevin Spacey, for example, have since been accused of being sexual predators and of um, targeting underage uh, boys and girls. So what, therefore, let's, let's now, okay, so we've got Bill Clinton involved. We've got a number of very high profile people with weird connections to him. Uh, Also Donald Trump, apparently. Yes. Uh, So we've got a lot of weird connections going on. What, presumably, what would be the purpose of luring, let's say, uh, you know, well-connected politicos there and, you know, let's say photographing them in compromising positions? What would be the goal of this? Well, it's to, it's, you know, generally to use it as, as leverage. I think what, what Epstein was doing, right, is that a lot of the girls that he abused and exploited didn't necessarily look like they were underage, even though they were underage. So basically, um, what was likely done is that there was some sort of setup of a, of a sexual encounter with the person being targeted, not actually being a pedophile, right? Then they would engage in the act and then it would be revealed that they were underage. And of course, uh, being accused of, you know, having an affair, for example, is very different than being accused of having, having had sex with someone who is legally considered a child, right? So I think that, um, may have been one of the angles of this operation in particular. But of course, you know, even today, you know, if someone has uh, is caught having, a, you know, sexual relations with an employee or, or other things like that, it can often end political careers. I also think it's very possible, too, that um, people that were aspiring to positions of power may have been sought out, blackmailed, and then elevated to positions, the the positions of power to which they had aspired previously. That way you have someone in a position of power who's already under your control, essentially. Can we take a few minutes for you to, even though I know it's a long story, tell us at least a little bit about what you might think of as the prehistory of Epstein. That is to say that it's not as if this has never been done before. This was quite shocking to me. Maybe I should have known this stuff, but I didn't. So you know the stuff I'm talking about, uh, yes. the cone <laughs> stuff, everything before Epstein. Right. 
So, uh, yeah, I think this is really important. So thank you for asking this, because I think this really lays out a stronger case for Epstein's ties to intelligence and and this network, because he's not the only one. This is not an operation or a type of, you know, practice that began and ended with Jeffrey Epstein. It's a network that's existed for decades and likely continues now, even after, you know, Epstein is, you know, ostensibly dead and things like that. Um, it's very likely these, these type of operations continue to now. So um, the genesis of this really goes back to the 1920s, the Prohibition era and the rise of organized crime, really. And because these type of sexual blackmail operations were originally perfected by the mob, specifically by what became known as the National Crime Syndicate, which was sort of this, this joining of the Italian mafia and the Jewish mafia, um, and with the Jewish mafia being led by Mayor Lansky. So um, beginning with World War II, during that period of time, the Office of Strategic Services, which was the forerunner to the CIA, basically created a formal alliance with the same national crime syndicate. At the time, of course, they justified it as being out of wartime necessity. But as is often the case with things that are said to be in war, out of wartime necessity, that relationship continued after the war had ended. By the way, that um, formal alliance with the mob, if anyone's interested, um, it's called Operation Underworld. You can look it up. Um, the government has basically admitted finally that it happened. So um, anyway, after after the war ended, uh, this connection between the CIA and this organized crime network grew extensively and basically led to the proliferation of several sexual blackmail operations, several of them involving children. Actually, the majority of them involved underage boys as opposed to underage girls, which is what we see in Epstein. But of course, there are um, instances of both. One of the ones that I wrote about specifically that has a lot of connections to Epstein, or rather the people around Epstein in the social circles that he moved in, things like that, is one that was um, created, well, officially created around the time of the McCarthy uh, Red Scare period. It appeared to have been an outgrowth of one of the ringleaders' um, own private sexual blackmail operation. This person, of course, um, his name is Louis Rosensteel. He was uh, basically a liquor baron from the Prohibition area with deep ties to the same organized crime syndicate. And he was known to have had these type of sexual blackmail operations disguised as quote unquote parties where people would be encouraged to let loose and they would see this type of activity with children going on and people would be encouraged to participate in these sort of activities at these functions. And later, at first, this was in Rosensteel's personal home. Later on, it, it began to be run out of um, various places, mainly the Plaza Hotel in New York. But initially, it began and, and took on this sort of intelligence political dimension during the McCarthy era, during the Red Scare, and involved J. Edgar Hoover, the former director of the FBI, and the person who was at the time general counsel to Senator McCarthy, Roy Cohn, who, of course, later on went to be a famous uh, lawyer for a lot of these same organized crime uh, figures and things like that. And this continued. Um, Roy Cohn eventually took this over from Louis Rosenstiel. They had a very close relationship, often described as being like father and son, Rosenstiel and Cohn. Cohn later carried this on, presumably up until his health began to visibly fail from AIDS around 1984. But prior to then, he was engaged in this type of activity for the purposes of, of blackmail. And actually, a lot of people 
since there's been renewed interest in Roy Cohn after Donald Trump's election and, and his candidacy, um, talking about how Roy Cohn um, had so much blackmail on so many people, people wondered how um, he had obtained it. And the same is also true, right, of, of J. Edgar Hoover, who was also known for his uh, acquisition of blackmail and interest in using it to maximum effect. So, um, you know, this appears to have been one of the ways in which these men obtained that type of information. But looking at Roy Cohn specifically, you see a lot of ties to similar people that are later become tied to Jeffrey Epstein, including Donald Trump, Alan Dershowitz, Barbara Walters even, and some others. It, it's, it's quite um, apparent that they swam in similar social circles as, a, as it were. Hopefully that's a, enough of a backstory. Yeah, sure, <laughs> um, sure. I, I go on. Uh, well, I, I'm curious actually if I can jump ahead. What do you make of this sudden and to my mind completely unexpected huge meme movement of Epstein didn't kill himself all over social media where it's just one funny graphic after another where you think it's going one way and then by the end it's oh by the way Epstein didn't kill himself goes in a completely different direction we had a guy on Fox News a guest who who I suppose you saw that clip and he's talking about a completely irrelevant topic and then at the end he says oh and by the way Epstein didn't kill himself this thing's just not going away I mean as somebody who's written on this topic and which obviously the media has tried to bury. I mean, surely you would think they would be pursuing this like crazy. This is an incredible story. And they're obviously, you know, and they're sitting on it. They're ignoring it. They report irrelevancies. This must be very gratifying for you. Yeah, well, what the media has, the mainstream media anyway, has tried to do with the story since Epstein was arrested in July. First, they made it into, they treated it like it was a sex scandal. And now that he's, you know, uh, presumably dead, they're treating it like a murder mystery. And, and they, um, you know, have really glossed over a lot of the important connections, like the intelligence ties and also the fact that most of his co-conspirators, really all of them, are still at large, including Leslie Wexner, Ghislaine Maxwell, Jean-Luc Brunel, um, among others. Yeah, a lot of the memes are really funny, but more than anything else, I'm just glad that it's keeping it, the story in the public consciousness and keeping it in the news, despite efforts to bury it. And I think that's really important because, you know, if when we consider the fact that this was state sponsored and that, you know, intelligence agencies, whether the CIA and also, you know, there's ties to Israeli intelligence as well. The fact that these intelligence agencies are willing to use and abuse children in, in the pursuit of power um, and control, you know, behind closed doors, blackmail and, and all of that. If that doesn't make the American people angry and demand some sort of accountability, whether it's from, you know, the CIA or from even the co-conspirators of Epstein whose names are known, right? You know, I don't really know what else will upset people if it's not that. So um, hopefully keeping the story in the news will allow a lot of the information they've tried to cover up, the media anyway, that they've tried to cover up, it will help it come out more. And, and I think it's very, it, it is very gratifying to see so many people challenge the official narrative because of frequently that's not the case. I mentioned earlier Phil Giraldi, and he, he basically concluded, just as you have, that if this isn't exactly what you're describing, namely intelligence agencies engaged in precisely what it appears to be, then he can't figure out what else it could be. Like that this clearly is what's going on. Um, a couple of things I want to, so... First of all, do you think he killed himself? I mean, that's a dumb question, but um, if not, what are we supposed to think about this? That he's he's sitting there, people are fearing that there's no way they'll ever let him stand trial. And and by they, we don't even know who we mean by they. You know, that <laughs> right. there's somebody just won't. And then as if like clockwork, he he winds up dead. I mean, like, do they do they expect us to believe this? 
<laughs> right? Well, I think there's only three possible options. Um, the first being if he did kill himself, he was allowed to commit himself because he wanted to kill himself. He was allowed help to do that. The other possible option that he was murdered and the third possible option that he was actually taken out of the prison alive and essentially e extracted from there, um, which of course is probably going to be the most controversial for most people. But I would like to say that given the involvement of intelligence agencies and the fact also that we have been told, the public has been told anyway, that all of the cameras recording what came in, in and out of Epstein's cell that night were non-functional and that all of the guards that could have seen anything were asleep you know, really makes this, um, you know, it could really go anyway. I think what determined which of those three options it, it actually is depends on uh, Epstein's uh, value to this intelligence agency or intelligence agencies and if he was considered expendable or not. Of course, if you favored the the theory that the sexual blackmail operation was the only service he was providing to intelligence, then he would have been expendable and it would be one of the first two options. But if there's also, you know, evidence that he was involved in a lot of other crimes beyond this on behalf of intelligence, mostly financial crimes, money laundering, among other things. If you favored that that was actually one of his most important, though often most overlooked, services provided to intelligence, then it is possible that that could have happened. There's also the possibility, too, that he had what some people refer to as a kill man switch, something like kill me in prison and I'll release all this damning information I have accumulated on numerous powerful people over the years and get me out of here type of thing. I really think it could really go any way at this point. But I do not think that he killed himself in the official story of hanging himself with paper thin bedsheets, uh, a guy that was several hundred pounds and six feet tall <laughs> in this tiny cell. Pretty much everyone that has ever spent any time in that prison or that has worked in that prison says that the official story of his suicide is impossible. And only now after we've had this um forensic pathologist uh, that saw the body openly say that he thought it was more in line with homicide strangulation. Only now has it become acceptable in mainstream media to, you know, question that official suicide story. But they took it <laughs> as soon as it came out and ran with it, even though a lot of other people watching the situation found that very difficult to believe and, and swallow. What did you make of the recent Project Veritas video and sometimes their videos, you know, they're, they promise a lot and then you see the video and there's not as much there as you were hoping for. This time there really was something there with that ABC News reporter going off on her network for not airing some material that she had done pertaining to this case. Right. Um, you know, I think the video is significant in the sense that, you know, it, it's confirmation of what a lot of us, you know, in independent media, for example, have known for a long time that mainstream media is very controlled and they kill stories that threaten, um, I guess you could call it the ruling class, the global elite, as it were, people with a lot of pull and a lot of influence. I think what I would say out of that video was the most significant was her claim that she, in pursuing the story, had been threatened a million different ways by Buckingham Palace, um, of course, referring to Prince Andrew's very close relationship with Jeffrey Epstein. That is actually was really an open secret. For years, um, if you look at the UK uh, press reports in the early 2000s, starting you know between the year 2000 and 2003, there are a lot of indications that people knew exactly 
what Jeffrey Epstein and Ghislaine Maxwell were doing to these underage girls and that Prince Andrew was intimately involved in that. And it is, as an example, there's one that talks about Ghislaine Maxwell having what this article refers to as parties where, quote, young girls are invited and she whips them and then teaches them sexual techniques to please older men. So, um, you know, and this is well before any of these, um, you know, sex trafficking charges, even when he went to prison the first time were ever made public, right? So, you know, this was an open secret. The, the royal family, um, I think it's interesting that they, you know, were factored into what she said because a lot of, you know, um, focus on, on this story, at least in American media, has been on, you know, figures in the United States um, and things like that, which has tried to um, sort of paint the picture that this was what Epstein was doing was isolated really only to the United States, when in reality, it was an international sex trafficking operation. He and his co-conspirators were taking girls from South America. They were taking them from Europe. They were taking them from Asia. So I think that, you know, this clip uh, touched on a little bit of that, you know, that this also spanned um, to other countries and also has the added effect of keeping this story in the news and making it clear that there were very powerful people that wanted this story to never come to light and that, you know, today still want it to go away. I'm Before we continue, I want to make clear that as usual, I'll be linking to the guest's material on the show notes page. So your articles on this, I'll put them up at tomwoods.com slash 1531 because that's where you get into a lot of real detail about some of the claims right. and some of the arguments that you're making here. So I, I want people to take a look at those. So that'll be at tomwoods.com slash 1531. Let me put it to you this way. Suppose you had a classroom full of uh, journalists and let's say they didn't have any particular ax to grind one way or another and there was no pressure being put on them. They were just naive young people who wanted to pursue a good story. Where would you want them to look where the media hasn't been looking? What angles would you want them to pursue? Oh, that haven't been pursued by by myself, for example? Well, or, or, that, or that maybe that have, but that where, you, in other words, if you could say to NBC News, this is what you guys should be talking about, and these are the people you should be interviewing and that sort of thing, what would you say? Okay, so um, there's a there's a couple different ways to answer that because I think um, there's a lot of different angles to pursue. Uh, the obvious one that I pursued personally was the intelligence angle. There is a lot of information there. I didn't I didn't even get into half of it really. But on the other side, the most underreported aspect I would say of Epstein's career, if you want to call it that are his financial crimes. There was a recent report by a man, I think his name is Steve Saylor. He basically showed that Jeffrey Epstein was the person, the shareholder at Bear Stearns that pulled out his money right at the time that popped, you know, Bear Stearns basically and, and led to its collapse and by extension, the 2008 crash, um, which is just really um, insane when you think about it. And also a lot of his uh, shady involvement with money laundering, which he was doing. Um, I hope to have a series on this coming up because I've already gathered some, you know, substantial evidence to, to show this, that he was uh, laundering money beginning in the late 80s and early 90s through real estate deals. And that is a big part of his past relationship with Donald Trump, which, you know, Donald Trump ended at some point in, in the 2000s. But prior to then and in the 1980s, um, Epstein and, and Trump were very close. And they were also close to another person named Tom uh, I think his name is pronounced Barrick or Barack. 
I'm not sure, but he's the head of, of Colony Capital. And the three of them together were referred to in, in media reports, you know, at nightclubs as being the three musketeers, right? So they were all very involved and they were all very involved in real estate. And all three of them have been accused of money laundering. Well, not Epstein, but there's evidence of that. But Trump and, and Barrick had been accused of money laundering through real estate as well and also have their own ties to organized crime that have been detailed by some reports as well. So I think um, there are a lot of avenues to explore, you know, and, and even what I've done in my work on examining his ties to intelligence, for example, I mean, there is a lot more to uncover. Um, I, you know, obviously when you do this type of reporting, you are limited by, uh, you know, you can only make an article long enough that people will read it. If you make it, you know, 20,000 words and up, uh, the, the amount of people that will actually get to the end of it goes down substantially, right? So you have to try and um, make it as readable as possible. And that often means at the expense of leaving out some details that you may think are interesting, but are not essential to the story. So I definitely think there are a lot of different avenues to pursue. Um, some of them, I'm actually writing a book about Epstein that will be out early next fall or the uh, late summer. So hopefully I'll have uh, <laughs> some time to pursue some more of those myself in the coming months. But honestly, I think, you know, the more people that look into this, the better, because there's really so much there. It's really um, a can of worms and there's so many ties between Epstein and a lot of scandals. Um, it seems like he was, it's sort of like a meta scandal, if you can call it that, where it connects to a lot of other things that have gone on over the years that seem not connected, but you know, there's the commonality of Epstein appearing in several of them, for example. In preparing for talking to you today, I was looking through your archive of columns and you have a column on what's been called Bill Barr's pre-crime program. Can you talk about what that is? And I think there's a tie-in with the topic of today's episode. Yes, there is. So um, Bill Barr's pre-crime program, if I remember correctly, it's called uh, the National Disruption and Early Engagement Program. And basically what this is, is that uh, it is a new um, tactic, I guess you could call it, by the Department of Justice that aims to prevent mass shootings from happening by essentially detaining uh, potential mass shooters before they commit any crime, which, you know, by any other definition would be pre-crime, right? And um, this has actually been uh, hinted at in the past few months, especially after the El Paso shooting, after which Trump basically said that the DOJ and social media companies and technology companies should work together to track down these shooters before they can act. So um, that's quite Orwellian in and of itself, but there is a tie-in to Epstein, and I have a much larger uh, report on this for those that are interested, but there is one company that is very involved or that is set to be involved in this pre-crime program, but the company software has to be adopted on a wider scale. It's only currently being used in a couple counties. It, the company is called Carbine 911. They market themselves as a next generation 911 uh, call center and emergency uh, service provider, you know, uh, software uh, suite, as it were. And uh, this was actually funded in a large part by Epstein and also by Ehud Barak, the former prime minister of Israel, who used to be head of Israeli military intelligence at the time that a 
former Israeli spy alleges that Epstein was recruited for Israeli intelligence, uh, military intelligence specifically. But of course, we know that Ehud Barak and Jeffrey Epstein, even after Epstein's uh, first arrest, was very close and they were seen together on numerous occasions with Ehud Barak going into Epstein's house on several occasions that have been noted, the most recent of which he was photographed entering and on, I believe, in 2016. Um, but anyway, this company, Carbine 911, what it basically does is that um, it, it either requires you to download a smartphone app and basically um, when you download this app, it says that it will allow you to connect with emergency services um, more quickly and reduce response time. But it also allows this company, which has very... Uh, deep and troubling ties to both U.S. and Israeli intelligence that allows them access to literally everything on your phone. And now, even if you don't have the app installed in your smartphone, um, calls 911 in a county or area where this software is installed, it is able to extract all that data from your phone anyway without you even having to install the app. And what is Orwellian about this is what they do with the data once they have it. They use it to analyze the past and present behavior of all callers and also to predict future patterns. And so this is um, because of its connections, which I lay out in, in my report to, you know, the Trump administration. There's several company uh, tie-ins to the Trump administration with Carbon 911. It is slated to be used as part of this pre-crime program, as is um, companies like Peter Thiel's uh, Palantir, which already has a predictive policing component that's been in testing, I think, for almost a decade now, and some other companies as well that have basically been laying the groundwork for this system that is now um, set to go live really in just a couple of months um, and was formally announced by Bill Barr last month on October 16th and honestly has gotten next to no media coverage despite the fact that I think those concerned about uh, the, the steady yet uh, reduction of civil liberties in the United States, you know, people that are worried about protecting their their liberty would be very concerned about a, a, a program like this. And there's really been no pushback and very little coverage of it from the media. The same media, of course, that's trying to bury the Epstein story or make it all about, you know, the details of his um, death. Well, um, I'll link to that column too, because I, I wouldn't have done that if we actually, if we hadn't just mentioned this just now. So I'm going to link to that and also your other stuff. And I may link, now that I think about it, maybe I'll, because I keep mentioning Giraldi, I'll, I'll link to him, his column too, on all this. So I'm going to put all this up at tomwoods.com slash 1531. Tell me about the outlet that you've been writing for, what the website is, so people can check that out. Okay, well, um, right now I write exclusively for mintpressnews.com. Mint Press News is based in uh, Minnesota in the United States. The editorial stance is pretty much anti-war, and we include perspectives from both the anti-war left and the anti-war right. So I guess that's the best way to <laughs> uh, to sum it up. We cover a lot of topics, um, a lot of focus on uh, geopolitics in the Middle East and also to an extent, you know, domestic policy, but it's mostly on uh, U.S. foreign policy. All right, excellent. So I'll link to that also. So everything, everything that you would be curious about <laughs> relating to this stuff will be at tomwoods.com slash 1531. Well, thank you very much for your time, Whitney. We certainly appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks so much for the opportunity. All right, folks. Remember, I release an episode like this every single weekday. So make sure and subscribe. I do have a YouTube version, but there's no video. It's just the audio of me talking. So most people are listening with some kind of podcatcher, some kind of podcast app. And the most popular one of those is Apple Podcasts. So tomwoods.com slash Apple is an easy way to subscribe to the show for free, get the episodes delivered automatically 
to your device. Next week, we've got some fun episodes. We've got a former heroin addict who is now in charge of a treatment center and whose efforts have really helped to defang the drug war little by little, de facto, where he lives. And you're going to be fascinated by the details of that. Then also Brad Berzer comes back to talk about history. We're talking about the early republic because he's just released a course for libertyclassroom.com on that subject. Peter Klein's going to talk to us about entrepreneurship because there's an article somebody sent me claiming that we like to romanticize entrepreneurs, but the fact is, if you really want to be an entrepreneur, you need to start off with money, you need to have family connections and stuff like that. So you know what the underlying message of that is. Capitalism's a scam and you need to have connections in order to get anywhere. So we're going to talk about that. A lot of fun stuff coming up. So make sure you subscribe at tomwoods.com slash Apple and I'll see you next week. Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit tomwoods.com to subscribe to the show for free and we'll see you next time. Like the sound of The Tom Woods Show? My audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com.